back in the year 1770, an Englishman by the name of Captain Cook sailed his boat along the east coast of Australia. The ship's name was the Endeavour. It was only just a little boat, a bit more than a hundred feet from stem to stern. He passed this harbour, which today is called Sydney Harbour. He didn't come in here. He called at a little place south of here called Botany Bay. But in 1788, the first fleet came here to Australia bearing a load of convicts and their taskmasters. They came to the place over there near the Sydney Harbour Bridge and they landed to establish a penal colony. These were terrible days, days of violence and brutality. Who were the convicts? Englishmen all, with a few Irishmen, and they were sent out for the motherland for terrible crimes such as stealing a piece of cheese or stealing a loaf of bread. They had been sentenced, most of them, to death. But at the mercy of the sovereign, they were told they could go to Australia. No, not a case that they were told they could go, they would go. And they were sent out in conditions almost as bad, some say worse, than the conditions that prevailed when the black slaves came to the United States of America. They came out here in these boats below the decks in terrible conditions. The rule of the land was the lash. One man received a thousand lashes until his back was just all bone. In the first fleet, there was an old lady of 84 years of age. She was sent out here for stealing a little piece of cheese to feed her grandchildren. And there was a boy of 10 years of age who had been a chimney sweep. He had stolen some little thing and he'd been sentenced to death. These were the original Australians. They came out here and they founded a nation that has become one of the greatest places in the world. And Sydney, some say, one of the greatest cities in the world, and some people like me say, the most beautiful city in the world. But then of course, I'm a little biased because this is home to me. What made this place what it is today? when it came from such a dreadful background. I can say only one thing, my friend, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when these poor benighted souls came here to Sydney Cove more than 200 years ago, they came with some people who carried with them the Bible. And the church, the Christian church, had a tremendous influence in the history of this nation. Without the Christian church and the influence of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, this place would have become the worst place on the face of the earth. But Australia today is a land of great prosperity, peace, uh, joy and happiness. People call it, Time magazine called it, the lucky country. But there was no such thing as luck in the founding of this country and in the establishment of the Commonwealth of Australia. It wasn't luck 
that brought Australia through. It was the grace of God. I'm John Carter, and today I welcome you to another edition of The Carter Report. A dear friend sent me this prayer. Dear Lord, so far today I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or self-indulgent. I have not whined, complained, or eaten any chocolate. I have charged nothing to my credit card. However, I will be getting out of bed in a moment and then I'm really going to need your help. <laughs> we all need the Lord's help, don't we? And the Bible says the best way to start our prayer time is to praise God and to thank him for his blessings. Young people, the devil doesn't want you to know that praise unclutters our minds so that we can focus on God. The greatest privilege in the universe is to communicate with our creator. As the song says, our God is an awesome God. The great I am, El Shaddai, the almighty, all-sufficient one. And wonder of wonders, he invites us to call him Father. And he invites us to tell him everything that is on our hearts. A Sabbath school teacher asked a little boy if he said his prayers every night. No, not every night, he declared, because some nights I don't want anything. <laughs> Let's not allow the frequency of our prayers depend on, what, on when we want something. Little Jenny had a better idea. After listening to her prayers one night, her mother said, Jenny, that's no way to say your prayers, to which she replied, but mother, I thought that God was tired of hearing the same old stuff every night, so I told him the story of the three bears. We can imagine God smiling when he heard that prayer. Then there was Martin Luther's friend who said, everything goes against me. My plans never work out. My dear friend, that is your own fault, said Luther. My fault? Yes, replied Luther. Why do you pray thy will be done? You ought to pray my will be done. But if you pray that God's will be done and he does it, you should be satisfied and not disgruntled. The answers to most questions about prayer, why does God sometimes say no or wait, are wrapped up in four important verses. Firstly, Matthew 7, 7. God tells us to ask and it shall be given. Seek and ye shall find. And so God does say, ask and you shall receive. But what do we do when he says no or wait? We turn to our second text, James 4, 3. You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Our third text, 1 John 5:14, reads, This is the assurance we have, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so these are God's conditions for answered prayer, that we ask with right motives and that we ask according to his will. However, there are times when our humanity finds it hard to accept his will. Which brings us to our fourth text, Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. 
Now, primarily, of course, this text is speaking about justification, but then it follows on that the justified will live by faith. And that's a lot of what Christianity is all about, isn't it? Living by faith, trusting in the unseen when we cannot see. And so, young people, the main purpose for prayer is the accomplishment of God's will in our lives and his work on the earth. And if we understand this, life's journey, though sometimes hard, will be softened by the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The topic is the message of the three angels. Undoubtedly, one of the most controversial messages in the Bible. It's the message that warns against the beast, the image of the beast, and the mark of the beast. The Bible says that a great test is coming for the world and the church. The question is, when does the test come? Many of my wonderful Christian friends in the evangelical world tell me that this is nothing to be excited about because they expect to be home with the Lord in glory because they believe that the great test concerning the image of the beast, the mark of the beast, the rule of the Antichrist will take place after the rapture and therefore all of these great truths are irrelevant as far as they are concerned but the question I ask today what if they are wrong and what if the rapture or the second coming does not take place before but it takes place after we shall consider these truths today I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation 14 and verses 6 and onwards, my dear friends. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. That is the strongest 
warning in all of Holy Scripture. The question we shall decide today is this. Does it happen before the second coming or after the second coming? If it is after the second coming, it is irrelevant. If it is before the second coming, it is the most important thing that you will ever hear. I want you to notice today, as an introduction, some great truths that we must accept, I believe. Number one, good people can disagree without being disagreeable. It is a tragedy that perhaps the most intolerant people in the world are religious people. Remember, the Spanish Inquisition was operated by the leaders of the established church. History says no one has been more cruel or more intolerant than religious people. But good people can disagree without being disagreeable. I think of John Wesley, my hero, and George Whitfield, the men who did more for God in their day than any other individual. John Wesley was an Oxford Don, an Oxford scholar, and George Whitfield, however, was the greatest of the preachers. He had a tongue from heaven. He was a silver-tongued orator, even greater in preaching than John Wesley. John Wesley in his theology was an Armenian. That means he believed that every person has got freedom of will. But not so George Whitfield, who was an ardent Calvinist. And he believed that God had determined from all eternity those who were going to be saved and those who were going to be lost. And both men disagreed with each other and there were people who tried to make them become enemies. But they loved each other to the end. And at the funeral that was taken by John Wesley for George Whitfield, who died when still relative, relatively a young man, an interfering person came and said, Mr. Wesley, sir, Reverend Mr. Wesley, is it true that you said that you did not expect to see George Whitfield in heaven? And John Wesley said, yes, indeed, ma'am. I said, I don't expect to see George Whitfield in heaven. The little lady laughed and said, as I expected. Ah, said John Wesley, I do not expect to see George Whitfield in heaven because he will be so close to the glory of the throne of God and I'll be standing so far back that I don't expect to see him. And so good men can disagree on theology without being disagreeable. If you belong to the rank of those individuals who say, unless you see everything the same as I do, then you are cursed, it is because you do not understand Christ or the gospel. Truth number two. Truth and tradition have always been opposed to each other. It was so in the days of our Lord, it is so today. Would you come to Mark chapter 7 and verse 7 and 8? This today hopefully will not be a traditional Bible study. Mark chapter 7. And I want you to notice what our Lord said about tradition. 
Mark 7, verse 7. Jesus, our blessed Lord, said, You worship me in vain. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Verse 13. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. In the days of Jesus, our Lord conflicted with the religious leaders and the established church over the issue of tradition. Today, I fear and I believe that the great established churches are holding on to tradition rather than walking in the light because the acceptance of the light of God's word challenges the status quo. It is a tragedy that has been fulfilled time after time in almost every church that after a church has passed a hundred years it is more interested in maintaining its own institutions and its own power than in walking in the light. So there's always been a battle between the priests and the prophets, between truth and tradition. The third truth is this. The discovery of God's truth always causes inner conflict and turmoil. A man who attended the meeting last week said to a friend of mine, I will not come again because it interferes with my walk with Christ. That is true. Because Christ was asking him to walk in a different direction. Listen. The discovery of God's truth always causes inner conflict and turmoil. Martin Luther went through such a struggle trying to find the truth of righteousness by faith. Martin Luther became dreadfully depressed. He believed that he had committed the unpardonable sin. He used to beat his body with rods and whips and chains because there was a tremendous conflict going on in his soul between the light and the darkness. At last, he broke through into the light. When Jesus spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to Paul, you're having, having a hard time of it, Paul, because you're kicking against the pricks. These sharp objects, he was kicking against them. When we hear a good sermon, often we will not feel good about it, and we will not feel good about ourselves because God is revealing to us the truth about Holy Scripture and our own salvation. If all you can say about a church service week after week, I enjoyed the sermon, it is because either you were not listening or because the sermon was not sent to you from God and was a waste of your time. I can think of a man in McLean, a little town not far from Grafton in North New South Wales. And Ted sat down the front seat 
And when he heard the truths of the three angels' messages, he would break out in a cold sweat, night after night, night after night. When I would ask him, ask the congregation to raise their hands, he would go like this, but he couldn't get his hand up. He would break out in a sweat because he was fighting the convicting power of the Spirit of God. My friend, do not fight the Spirit of God. Now the fourth great truth. And if you're watching this on television, I pray God that you will not turn it off until you hear the evidence. Because maybe God today is sending you a message from his word. Here is the fourth truth. The great test comes before the second coming. And I can prove it to you from Holy Scripture if you will allow me to do so. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. This chapter is called by Bible scholars the little apocalypse. Matthew 24, we will start at verse 4. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. Now look at me. Religious deception is the name of the game. Our, I need three arms. Our blessed Lord said, watch out that no one deceives you. No one is no one. Watch out that no one deceives you. In the last days, there will be many deceivers. Now look please at verse nine. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and will be hated by all nations because of me. Jesus here is talking to Christians, members of the church. And then if you notice, let me see if I come down a little further. Yes, verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. This is talking about people in the church. And then verse 13 is a great verse that we know. Because, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is talking about the last days and uh, the preaching of the gospel. Now notice verse 20 and onwards, please. Pray that your fight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there'll be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. This is the great tribulation. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. The Bible teaches that the elect are upon the earth during the great tribulation. The elect is a term that refers to the church of God. And then verse 29, immediately after, underline after, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power 
and great glory and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. The Bible tells me that after the tribulation of those days, the Lord Jesus Christ returns and saves the elect. Now some would say to me, without any evidence from Holy Scripture, the elect here refers to our Jewish remnant after the second coming. In Holy Scripture, in this context, the elect refers to the church of the living God. And the Bible says, immediately after the tribulation, then the Lord returns. Now listen to this great truth that sometimes we inadvertently overlook. This is of great importance. Here it is. The stories the historical narratives of the book of Daniel and the book of Daniel is apocalyptic. It is tied in with the book of Revelation. The book of Daniel is apocalyptic. Matthew 24 is apocalyptic, eschatological, referring to the last days. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic, eschatological, referring to the last days. Listen to this. The stories and the narratives that are found in the book of Daniel illustrate the last days and the experiences of God's people as they go through the great tribulation. This is not important. Tremendously important. The stories the historical narratives that are found in the apocalyptic book of Daniel illustrate the experience of God's people in the last days as they go through the time of trouble. Listen. The issues in the last days are these. The Antichrist, the image of of the beast and the law of God. Who says so? Well, the Bible says so. We read it in Revelation 14. The issues in the last days are the Antichrist, the image of the beast or to the beast, and the keeping of the law of God. Are there any historical narratives in the book of Daniel that talk about these issues? I wonder. Would you come here to Daniel chapter 3? And here we have the story of the image of the beast. Daniel chapter 3 and my dear friends, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high. It says in the original, 60 cubits high. Nine feet wide, six cubits wide. Six, six, six. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now listen as 
I tell you the story that you know. The image of the beast is set up on the plain of Dura in Babylon. And the king says, you must bow down and worship the image of the beast, which is 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, six, six, six. And everybody falls down in the dust with his nose in the dirt and worships the image of the beast, except three young men who just happen to love God and worship the one true God, and they also are Sabbath keepers. How interesting. The only ones standing firm for God are three young men who worship God and are Sabbath keepers, and their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, they're the Babylonian names. And the Bible says the trumpets blow and even the bagpipes get in on the action. And so there's a lot of noise. Everybody kneels down except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king says, I'll give you an up, another opportunity. But these three stubborn young men say, we don't need an opportunity because we're not going to bend. We're not going to bow. We're not going to budge. And so the king says, heat it up, boys. And so they make the furnace seven times hotter. Seven is a perfect number, except if you're going to be burnt seven times hotter and the big brawny men like these wrestlers who throw the young men in the fire are destroyed by the heat but Shadrach Meshach and Abednego fall down into the fire and the king says well we got rid of that problem then he calls his counselors and says, didn't we cast three in? But I see four, and the fourth has the form of the Son of God. Listen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were kept from the fire while in the fire. They weren't raptured home before the time of trouble. God delivered them in the fire. God delivered them from the fire. That's how it's going to be with the church. The church of God is going to be delivered by God in the fire from the fire. Now, that's the story of the image of the beast. What about, is there a story in the book of Daniel that talks about the keeping of the commandments of God? Yes, there is. Would you come over here to Daniel chapter 6 and verse 5? And this is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Look at verse um, 5. Let me see. Verse 4, at this the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. 
Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the issue here is the same as in Revelation 14. It is over the law of God. You know the story. Nobody can pray to any other God except you, O king, for 30 days. Daniel says, I prayed all my life. I'm going to keep praying. So he prays three times a day. And these evil schemers come and they catch him praying because this was a setup. And even though the king didn't want to see his best friend torn to pieces by the lines, he gives the decree. There's a death decree. Now God doesn't come along and say, Daniel, because you're so righteous and such a good man, I'm going to rapture you home to glory now. Daniel is thrown into the den of lions. He's thrown into the den of lions. But listen, Daniel was kept from the lions while in the lion's den. Daniel was kept from the lions while in the lion's den. Daniel went through the great tribulation. He went through the time of trouble. God did not say, there's not going to be any trouble for you, but God did something better. Daniel was kept from the lions while in the lion's den. In the last days, God's church is going to go into the lion's den over the issue of keeping the law of God, over the commandments of God. That's why it says here, are those people who keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. And so, deliverance came from the flames and deliverance came from the lion's while in the lion's den. Now look here at Revelation 3, verse 10 and 11. This text is grossly misunderstood by some. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Here is the hour of trial. Notice what happens after the hour of trial. Verse 11, I am coming soon. And so after the hour of trial, our Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. Now the text says, I'm going to keep you from that hour of trial. God is going to keep his people from the hour of trial in the same way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were kept from the fire while they were in the fire. He's going to keep his people from the last great conflict and the great test in exactly the same way that Daniel was kept from the lions while in the lion's den. The Bible teaches dogmatically, clearly, plainly that the great test comes to the world and to the church before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, now I say this with Christian charity, 
People say you have no right to say those things because you're in the minority. It's never, have you never heard about what America is about? America is about freedom of speech. And I say to every person watching, God save us from religious fanatics who would stop the preaching of the word of God unless it coincides with their own opinions. I believe in the great man who said, I disagree with everything you say, but I will spill my blood to defend your right to say it. That is what America is about. That is what the Bible is about. Tribulation comes before the triumph. Now, here is the heart. The message of the three angels is God's great get ready message sent by God to the church and to the world. This message is not irrelevant. Oh, my friend, the devil has stolen a march upon the church. The idea that the church of God is raptured home before the great tribulation has lulled the church into a carnal sleep of lethargy. It has sapped the church of its power. Why should we bother even understanding these prophecies? The Lord is going to rapture us home to glory. What I'm talking about today is the great test that the people of God must endure if they are to stand in the day of God. Now let me show you from Scripture what this message is. Revelation 14 and verse 14. Revelation 14, verse 14. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now that, of course, is a picture of the harvest of the coming of the Lord. Here we have Jesus coming as the Lord of the harvest. But before Jesus comes as the Lord of the harvest, God in his compassion and righteousness sends to the world a great warning message. I want to look you in the eye and tell you something. If you want to be ready for the coming of the Lord, then it would do you well to understand this message and to obey it. Please notice it, Revelation 14, verse 6 and onwards. Revelation 14, verse 6 and onwards. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel. Verse 9, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Verse 9, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image... And verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. The issue in the last days is over the holy law of God. 
I want you to notice this message somewhat, only somewhat, in detail. The Bible says, verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, and he had the everlasting or the eternal gospel to preach to the whole world. So the first part of that message is the preaching of the eternal gospel. Now I've heard some people say, well, we have a different gospel today. We don't have the gospel of the Bible. We passed on from there. If you pass on from the gospel of the Bible, you pass on into Antichrist. There is only one gospel, the gospel of the Old Testament and the gospel of the New Testament. The gospel that was rediscovered by the Protestant reformers. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. I'm going to speak next week on the hidden gospel. Because people all the time are talking about the gospel. It doesn't mean that it's got into their hearts. The gospel is the good news that God loves you so much that he gave his son who came down to this world, who kept the law of God perfectly, who was affected by our sins but not infected with our sins, who made a complete sacrificial atonement for our sins on the cross, who died for us. He rose from the dead on the third day. He's coming in power and glory. That is the gospel. The gospel says, whoever will may come. You're not saved because you've got a head full of brains, because you're smarter than everybody else. We are saved because we recognize that we are sinners and we are unworthy and we come to God as little children and say, Lord, have mercy. And then God changes the heart. That is the gospel. And there's only one gospel, you can talk about it, you can debate about it, you can write about it, but there's only one gospel, the everlasting gospel. Would you come over to verse 6 again? Keep your finger there. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second part of this great message is the doctrine of the judgment. The most unpopular doctrine in the world. A lot of people don't want this, but they do not want the pre-advent judgment. The Bible teaches that before Jesus comes, there is a judgment. And you can read this in Daniel chapter 7. But Daniel looks up into glory. And while the beast is doing his nefarious work, there is a judgment that includes the saints of God. Now there's a terrible heresy that says some people are going to escape going into the judgment. I was reading only this week the great Birkhauer, the great systematic theologian, one of the world's greatest theologians. He said, everybody comes into the judgment 
and the sins of all are investigated in the judgment, including the sins of the saints. Oh, I don't want to hear that, says the saint. He's got something to hide. There is a judgment. And you and I can put it over on our friends. We can lie, we can cheat, we can be flakes all our lives and get away with it. But you can't get away with it in the judgment. Because God knows the heart. Every one of us will stand one day in the presence of God. You say, but this is not grace. Well, go and read what the, if you won't take it from me, take it from the great Protestant theologians like Augustus Strong, Birkow, the best minds who teach the doctrine of judgment. And the Bible teaches a pre-admin judgment. And then there's a warning here and a challenge. The Bible says, worship the creator. Now that's interesting because the verse there quotes from the fourth commandment. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the springs of water. That's a quote from the Sabbath. And people say, of course, that doesn't matter. It was done away with. The Sabbath is the great pointer to the great truth that we were made by God. Now today we live in a world when people, many people don't believe in a personal creator God. And they believe that over billions and billions and billions of years, without the help of a creator God even, man made himself through the process of evolution. The doctrine of evolution, which is a very plausible and wonderful idea, teaches that if you give hydrogen gas enough time, it'll become people. You don't need to laugh at that, but that's basically, if you summarize it, and if you get down to the nitty-gritty, hydrogen gas will turn into people if you give them enough time. I don't believe it. And today, a great movement is underfoot in the, in the scientific world that says there must be a creator God because life is so marvelously complex. The great message that prepares the world to the coming, for the coming of Jesus is the everlasting gospel. The doctrine of a pre-advent judgment that says you're going to stand in the judgment bar of God if we'll get it ready. And the doctrine that we were made by God and because we were made by God, we are accountable to God. Now please notice verse 8. Revelation 14, verse 8. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. There is a great system of religious deception that is called Babylon the mighty. Now, people who don't understand the Bible think it's talking about Iraq. Got nothing to do with Iraq. 
It is referring to the old system of falsehood that was set up over there thousands of years ago as a great counterfeit. It represents false religious worship. People say, well, if you just worship, it's great. No, you may be worshiping the wrong God in the wrong way. Babylon is a system of religious deception ruling the world today. Read on, please. Now you can see why this is an unpopular message and why most TV evangelists avoid it like SARS. Revelation 14 and verse 9 and onwards. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, not a little whispering hope. Some people who profess to believe this message are whispering hopes. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image and for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. The beast is the amalgamation of church and state that changes the law of God and persecutes the people. It is the last great deception alive and well today on planet Earth. Most preachers would do anything than unmask the beast because they lack spiritual courage. Every preacher is called to preach these things. The beast, the image of the beast is the copy of the beast. The beast is a coalition of church and state. Let the churches of the land unite with the state. Let them get the power of civil government. Let them enforce religious laws. And that is Antichrist, the image of the beast. The mark of the beast is counterfeit worship. The Bible says that God has a mark. It is interesting to note that the Bible says here, there is no rest day or night. The gospel gives a person rest. And in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, God has a symbol for the rest that is found in the gospel. It is Sabbath. It says in the book of Hebrews, there remains therefore a rest or a Sabbath keeping Hebrews 4 for the people of God. God has a rest. And because people have turned from the rest of God, the world is in such a terrible mess. Listen. Karl Barth quotes some 
obscure theologian, but his words are so pertinent when he wrote, when the holy day becomes the day of man, society and humanity wither away and the demons rule. If you treat the holy day of God as a secular day, your humanity will wither away and the demons will rule in your life. No rest for those who break the holy covenant. We don't have space to write it up where it talks about the beast. Well, I'll do my best. The image, the image of the beast, the copy of it, the mark of the beast, which is the counterfeit Lord's Day. It is the counterfeit to the Sabbath. Now I know very well, seeing I've lived here for a long time now, that most people want a sermon that says, you're okay and I'm okay and everything's okay. That's great, but what if it isn't okay? The Lord is coming and the church and the world are facing the greatest test. You want to know the most important thing in the world? Not making money. None of those things. Don't, don't. Winning some great prize. Winning some, you know, Time magazine. I was looking at it yesterday and it said 15 people who had their 15 days in the sun. Now we don't even know who they are. We don't care. They became little stars for a while. There's a guy there with his funny hairdo. It says... People don't even remember him, let alone his funny hair. I'm here at magazines that 15 minutes in the sun, people will do anything to win an Emmy or one of those things from Tinseltown. You know how much they matter? Zilch. One of the Beatles said, we're more famous than Jesus. Who said it? What was his name? Whatever happened to him? Listen, the most important thing is this distinctive message. I dedicate my life and my ministry. So help me God to the preaching of this message. It is the message of God. And I would say in the words of a great president, of the United States of America when facing a great crisis. I would sooner perish in a cause I knew would triumph than triumph in a cause I knew would perish. This cause will triumph because it has behind it Almighty God.